Hello and welcome to A Novel Process, the podcast about what it's really like to write a book. My name is May Jasper. Okay, gang, this is season two, episode one of the podcast where I am writing a novel and every fortnight I make an episode to tell you guys how it's going. It is a new year and so it's been more than a fortnight since we've seen each other. How are you? I hope awesome. I am equally fabulous and really excited about getting rolling on the book again. I thought about it a lot over Christmas, but I thought the first thing we should do, because it has been a bit of time between drinks, is kind of recap where we left things off at the end of season one. You may remember that the last episode of last year was basically a cascade of revelations from me about how the book was supposed to work. And literally some of those revelations were coming to me as I recorded. So (laughs) they were fun and great. I really enjoyed having them. But as often happens with this stuff, the revelations have to settle and coalesce and condense into what actually is going to happen. Coming out of that episode, which I listened to again today, there are four main revelations that are the really important ones that have kind of defined my thinking about the book over Christmas and going forward this year. The first one was the kind of starting point for that last episode, which was we need to up the stakes on the moral quandary at the center of the book. So the people need to be alive when they go into the cave. The aliens don't just need dead human brains, which would make this a story about organ donation. They need living human brains, making this a volcano sacrifice story, or more realistically, a story about euthanasia. The second revelation that we want to try and hang on to is that the old version of the story, we were starting way too late. Yeah, this story needs to start when a human meets an alien. Yeah, and we need to see things like the negotiation around human sacrifices. We need to see the humans discovering what Zykoft is and what it does and how it works. Um, So, which fundamentally changes the story in some ways that are uh, exciting, but that's something that we need to do. That way we don't have to build in a whole lot of exposition at the start, catching everybody up. We see everything happen as it happens. Revelation 3, it came from me interviewing a lot of people who were terminally ill and understanding that that experience of being terminally ill has such amazing possibilities for stories. There is such a huge amount of variety around how that circumstance can happen, what it's like to be dying or deciding to die. And even though there's all this variety, there's also a lot of things that are the same every time. So exploring that space was a really important thing for this novel to center around. And the final revelation was the biggest one of all that definitely came to me on the day of recording. And so as a result, I didn't go into a lot of detail in the last episode about, which was somehow all those previous three revelations add up to the fact that this story actually is a rom-com unity. The thing that I tried to write nine months ago and moved away from because I couldn't make it work, that's what this story actually is. And that's very exciting that we can get back to that because I really loved that idea. So what I want to do today is to be more articulate about why this story is a rom-com unity. And that's kind of what I've been thinking about a lot over Christmas anyway just working out exactly how it's going to happen. When we talk about a rom-com, and I've done this a little bit before, but I want to be as explicit as possible, there is a kind of structure to rom-coms or romances in general. And basically what you need is two entities, usually it's characters, we're doing communities, but either way, two entities who have each of them a want 
a need and a reason that they can't be together. So the want is something that uh, they want, obviously, but it's also the thing that kind of brings them together at the start of the story. Their wants are aligned, and that's why they work together. But their need is something is a, something that they actually will eventually realise they each provide for each other. That's the thing that's going to bring them together at the end of the story. The reason they can't be together is the problem that they're going to overcome over the course of the story. If we think about the most cliched rom-com in the world, it's not a specific movie or book, but when I describe it to you, it will sound very familiar. Let's imagine it's set in a high school and we have two high school kids, one of whom, let's call her the woman because she usually is, is an uptight A-type, very clever and very focused, but she puts people off because she's not like chill and friendly. And then the other one is usually the dude and he's a slacker type, you know, he's charming and he coasts by on his good looks, but he really at some point is going to need to focus up and, and actually, you know, start thinking about his life, man. And let's say they're both on the debate team and he's really good at debating in the sense that he's very charming and no one really listens to what he's saying and she's really good at debating because she focuses and researches and thinks and both of them decide that they want to win the big debate competition at the end of the year. She wants it because she is an A-type and she's very competitive. He wants it because his mother is always on his case about taking something seriously. So their wants force them to be on the same team and to walk towards the same goal. What they need is really obvious, but I'll state it anyway. She needs to chill out and he needs to focus. He can help her chill out and she can help him focus. That's what's going to make them into a good couple by the end of the thing. The reason they can't be together, and this is a really common rom-com reason, is they hate each other. <laughs> they get terribly on each other's nerves because they're starting from really different places. That's your basic rom-com premise. What's great about this new idea, this new way of thinking about our story, is how incredibly closely it lines up with that idea. I don't mean the specifics of the debate team stuff. I mean the idea of having a want, a need, and a reason they can't be together. So if we think about the humans, our human community, what they want is a, a way to economically revive their town. And you can almost shorten it in this structure to what they want is Zykoft or something like Zykoft, some industry that is going to make them a lot of money. What they actually need is to build a stronger community not through money or not entirely through money, but through building again them, that sense of themselves as a community, the connections between people that make them human. That's what they need. And the reason that they can't get that from the Gaelk is because human sacrifice is morally repugnant and also euthanasia is illegal. Now, let me expand on that a little bit. Part of this is coming from some research that I have done over the Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve period in talking to some friends of mine who are lawyers. And ever since we've kind of taken this tack with the book where we change from a organ donation story to a euthanasia story, and particularly now that we're seeing it from the initial phases of setup, I went into it thinking, okay, one of the challenges for this community, this, this story which previously had been about people in local government, is going to be how do we set up this arrangement where we can have people 
sacrifice themselves for the good of the community and how do we make it legal? What is the process we go through to make that happen? So I talked to a couple of lawyer friends and the answer was, yeah, nobody's going to do that. Yeah. Obviously, we have a little bit of trouble with time because at the moment, technically, euthanasia is legal in Victoria. So I already was thinking that probably we would move this back in time and we might even set this, the book, actually in like the 90s is what I'm thinking. But even beyond that, euthanasia, if you were trying to get euthanasia legalised in an environment where it wasn't legalised, coming to a government and saying, if you're going to legalise euthanasia, I will get a whole lot of monetary benefit. No, no government is going to agree to that. Nobody's going to legislate that because the people who are against euthanasia are already against euthanasia and the people who aren't against euthanasia are going to be like, yeah, that doesn't sound great that it's then going to make you money. Initially, I was like, oh, that really throws a spanner in my works of my story about people who literally work in government. But what it does do is give us fabulous stakes, right? If this is now a story that has to happen in secret, they have to, this, this community has to find a way to encourage people to be human sacrifices without the information getting out to any outside legal authorities. And that's the looming threat that we now have in our narrative and how hard that would be to actually make happen. There's a lot of bureaucracy around death that is very difficult if, for example, you don't have a death certificate because you don't have a dead body because the dead body is in a cave with some aliens. So do you try and get the coroner on side to sign off on a death certificate for a body that doesn't exist? Are you, how are you make sure the coroner doesn't tell all the people outside? And if you don't do that, and then even if you convince them, oh, yes, it's fine, My mom, I agree, my mum wants to donate herself to aliens, I agree that's what she wants to do, I'm on board, I support you. Six months down the line where you're trying to settle your mum's affairs and you get run into the 50 millionth barrier of not having a death certificate, at that point, don't you go forward and start to report these people and start to bring in the outside consequences. So, that's a fun legal tangent that I think is really interesting. And again, it, it creates the three things that we need. Want, a need, and a reason that they can't be together. For the Gaelk, what they want is to get home. They want to be able to repair their spaceship and get home. What they need is to form a bond with a community. It's a very similar need to what the humans need. And there is some backstory to the Gaelk, which I haven't gone into much on the podcast before uh, because it really hasn't come into the story before. But that's the other thing about this new structure. I get to use it, which is great. Basically, I want to give the Gaelk an X. Again, an X in this circumstance is not a person or an entity. It's another community that they used to exist in a similar relationship with that ended badly. This is also feeding in, obviously, to the reason they can't be together. The reason they can't be together is because they had an X had another community called the Isaiba, and the relationship ended badly. And it ended badly because the Gaelk hurt the Isaiba. I'll explain exactly in a minute, but just as a kind of broad idea, it's like it was a bad breakup and it was the Gaelk's fault. And what the Gaelk took from that was, we should never be in a romantic relationship again because we'll only hurt people. Yeah? In, a, in the rom-com version, that's what it would be. In our version... What I think happened is the Asaiba were a race of squid people. So they're from their home ocean planet. And the squid people 
They have this insane quality to their biological matter, which makes them incredibly good at transforming themselves. This is obviously lines up with some of the stuff about real squid or real octopuses or real cephalopods. They're incredibly malleable. They're uh, very good at changing their appearance, very good at changing how they work. This is that, but on steroids. Like if a, a, a cyber is being attacked, they can make sure that their skin hardens and uh, they can repel that attack. If an cyber needs to be able to shift their cells to be able to do something else, they can do it. They are incredibly adaptive. And you can imagine for the Georg, who build things out of biological material, cyber cells, it's like a super weapon. Yeah, they could build the most amazing technology out of the cyber. And the idea is that they, for a while, the Georg and the cyber lived in harmony. And they, the, when an cyber was going to die, they came to the Georg and the Georg would use their cells and build technology, which benefited both communities. But that at a certain point, the Georg became greedy and started to hunt the cyber and kill them in order to build more and more fabulous technology. And so there's a war. And once the war is ended, the Georg realize that they were the assholes in this situation and they make a vow never to involve themselves with a community like that again. So now we have this situation where we have our little colony of Georg on Earth. And one of the things that I really want to happen in this new version is that when the first human meets the Georg, one of the things they notice about them, apart from the fact that they are bioluminescent salamanders, is that all of them are missing limbs. Yeah, every one of them has an arm missing, a leg missing, sometimes both. And that that is how they have repaired their spaceship up to this point. So we're losing all the stuff with the sheep. The humans are no longer required to build the sheep because the Georg have been sitting in this cave on Earth, chopping off their own limbs and making them into the spaceship for however long that took. And they're just at the point now where they need these brains to be able to repair it. And they're, let's say there's 40 Georg. They're starting to go, okay, great. Well, now we have to work out which of us healthy Georg who could live a long time is going to sacrifice ourselves for the good of the community. And then they come across these humans who are not the cyber. They don't have a super weapon, but they present an opportunity to not have to go so far as to literally die, have one in 40 of their people die. Because their want is to get home, they compromise on their values a little, a very little bit to work with the humans. What they realise over the course of the book is what everyone who swears off romantic connection because they're going to hurt people realises, which is that when you do that, you don't just prevent the possibility that you might hurt someone, you also prevent the possibility that you might benefit someone. I really want to have part of this ROM community be not just that the humans gain the benefits of access to euthanasia, which I think really would bring that community together in a way that maybe is not first expected. Again, let's imagine this is an aging community. One of the things about being in a dying town is that all the young people leave. You've got a whole lot of older people sitting around, missing their kids, not seeing their grandkids, and thinking if only the mine came back, then everyone would come back to town. And then you have the Zykov to come in, and that does generate some economic possibility. It doesn't bring back their kids, but it brings back new young families. It brings back different people. But the thing that brings back their families, the things that strengthens the bonds between their community and the people they love is this idea of, I'm going to die, 
and I know about it in advance. Please come home. Let's say everything that we need to say. Let's settle everything that we need to settle. And then you add in one of the problems with euthanasia under the existing circumstance where it is legal. One of the problems is that it's very hard sometimes for someone who's dying to consent to euthanasia because you don't want to consent on a good day because it's a good day. You know, you're having a nice time. But when you get to a bad day, you're maybe not able to talk or you're maybe not conscious. And so being able to express, all right, I'm ready to go and actually be ready, it's very hard to do. But if you have telepathic aliens, you can get around some of these problems. You can, not just that, not just getting consent, you can have the conversation with your mum that you never managed to have and you missed your opportunity because now she's unconscious. You can still do that with telepathic aliens, as long as you trust them, as long as they're part of your community. Even more than that, Again, I want the Georg to feel like they are benefiting this community so that telepathy is part of it. But also imagine that your mum dies and afterwards you get given a paperweight. And the paperweight is, is kind of squishy and maybe a little off-putting at first because it's literally made out of your mum's brain cells. But when you're holding it, if you look at something, sometimes you'll get a flash of a memory of your mum looking at that thing, looking something similar to that thing. You can't talk to her, but you look at your mum's kitchen and she remembers a family dinner. Better yet, you look at yourself in the mirror and you get a flash of how much she loved you. That technology is something that it would be very easy for the Georg to create and I feel like would be an immeasurable benefit to the humans, a way to really unite that community. But at a certain point in the story, when the outside world starts to impinge, it starts to look like these people that have been helping the Georg for so long are now potentially going to go to jail, that some of the people that they helped, and while they're very grateful for the paperweight, they're very grateful for the chance to talk to their mum, now this issue with the death certificate is causing them terrible trouble. Maybe some of the people who donated their family didn't want them to do it. I talked uh, in last year's episode about this idea of a a woman who was very dying very angry and who decided against the will of her husband and her family that she was done and she couldn't stand them seeing her in a less than perfect light and so she just walks into the cave. That family, the Georg haven't improved things for and that's kind of their worst nightmare coming true, right? And this is what happens in the second or the later half of a romance novel or a, a rom-com is that all the things that, all the reasons that you can't be together, they come back but harder. So, yes, it's illegal for human sacrifice. Now there are consequences to that egality. Yes, the gay orc made a vow never to connect themselves to the community because they would hurt people. Now they're actually hurting people. But they overcome those problems, come together as a community. I think maybe the gay orc doesn't go home. But that's the takeaway. They stay in this cave and they become part of this town. And this town that, you know, they wanted Zykov, they thought Zykov was the answer, the actual answer is euthanasia. That's the thing that's going to make them a stronger community. It's a big statement because, you know, not everybody loves euthanasia, but I think it, I really like it. I really like how it works. There's a lot of things to do. I really want to start, you know, narrowing down exactly how this structure is going to work, so that's probably the next thing. But let's not talk about it now. All that, that's what I've been thinking about for the last two weeks. I'll be back in a fortnight. In the meantime, I always love to hear from listeners about how they think the process is going. 
The place to leave questions or comments or just to keep up to date with the novel process is on the scene socials or at the website, the scene, spelt the hyphen scene.com.au. Have a good one.